0: Secret Story has been described by many, many people over the years as a soundtrack without a movie. That's the most overriding description that uh, sticks with me, and when I think about all the different ways people have talked about that uh, record, and and in many ways it was kind of designed to be that way. It's it, it's a record that really, if you listen to it from beginning to end, which I did probably dozens of times during the process of putting the record together after all the stuff was recorded and and that whole process of mixing and mastering and everything where you really have to live with the record. I just remember I used to drive around all the time and I would listen to the whole thing and it really was an incredible soundtrack to what was ever going on outside the car if I was driving around or, or in my life as I was you know, sitting in a room somewhere or whatever, it has an unintentional virtue in that respect. It's You know, I, I've often hoped to make music where people could find something in the music that reflected themselves in it, and I was, I was very surprised to find it happening to me with my own music as I was listening to it. kicks off with Above the Treetops which for me has always felt like kind of a it's almost like the opening credits somehow. Somehow that tune as as, uh, when I was putting it together had this sense of of an overture or or as a kind of introduction into this world and uh, functions that way within the larger piece. (laughs) facing west is sort of the launching point for the journey in a way after the opening the singers invoke on uh, above the treetops and in many ways references a lot of the essential conceptual qualities that the group had covered so well you know when we first started and and uh, you know that feeling and that sort of quality of the midwest and you know, that sort of open spaces kind of thing was w- what the tune suggested. And, you know, the original version of this, I'm playing piano. And of course, I could never really quite get that same feeling like Lyle, who's such a master at that, um, you know, is is able to, to get in. And I was really happy that he agreed to come in and play on it because it, it's so much of, of that thing. And the tune, basically, the house that I grew up in was Facing West. You know, we, we had a great late-day sun thing happening in, in in the front of our house that I always felt like I grew up in that kind of light and that, that whole thing of living in Missouri facing towards Kansas. And this tune just brings that feeling to me. in a Suitcase is one of the first pieces that I wrote when I got the Singlovir in the late 70s. And, and it's funny for people to, to try to imagine now how revolutionary it was to be able to have something, you know, like what every two-bit computer in the universe can do now in, in a freeware program. At that time, it was like you know, seeing somebody from Mars landing in your front yard that you had a, a box that allowed you to do basic sequencing and have, you know, 16 different sounds going at once and, and all that. It was just like mind-boggling. But it, for me, as especially as a guitar player, it was like, you know, the sky opened up or something. It was suddenly every sound was there, was possible. Even if, if looking back on them now, they're kind of uh, not the greatest sounds you ever heard, but at the time it was just incredible. And, and also to be able to do things with polyrhythms and layer different rhythms on top of them, each other and, and do that sort of uh, at will compositionally and get an immediate uh, model of what you were doing was just miraculous. And uh, this tune was kind of one of the first sketches that I did, you know, and and you couldn't edit anything. you couldn't change anything. you 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 kind of had to play it in sort of like you played to a tape recorder at, at that time. Uh, and I kept the file around and always felt like I'd sort of gotten to something that I never, ever would have gotten to under any other circumstances. And when it kind of came time uh, for this record, that was one of the, the pieces that I sort of said, okay, I'm going to really go with that idea and try to expand on that. And it ended up being, again, sort of, you know, as the record is unfolding, to me that became the key track. That was the one where it sort of like opens up into really new territory. I'd never made a track like that. Sounds unlike anything I'd, I'd done up till then and has this, you know, really cinematic quality to it that uh, is reinforced with the actual orchestra which is something i never ever in a hundred zillion years could have done just with the synth version Um, when i finally heard it played uh, in the studio uh, with the real dynamics that i had intended from actual great players it was uh, really a a goosebump moment Finding and Believing is certainly the most ambitious writing on the record, and um, as a piece it's quite a long form that goes through many different sections and sort of evolves in a way that, again, is not like anything I had done prior to that um, in any situation. Again, it's where the orchestra, I think, really becomes an essential part of what the piece is. The range of feelings and qualities that this tune invokes is something that kind of reflects the complexity of of what had uh, been emerging in, in my life that was different from Bright size life and from the early records that I'd made. There's a, an ambiguity to the kinds of chords, particularly in the middle section, that sort of invoke something other than just diatonic harmonies to a particular key or, a, or modal playing or jazz harmony. It's a completely different kind of of way of thinking about what harmony can be. And, you know, also the the sort of narrative, expositional quality of what this piece offers is special and different from other stuff. All of this music was written and kind of conceived within the environment of the singlovir, which was such a kind of freeing set of possibilities for me. I mean, it sort of opened up all of music in a way, sort of beyond just the the limits of guitar. And even though the guitar was in my hand for a lot of the writing process, I could also enter material from a keyboard or even just, you know, from a very primitive sort of computer terminal text type uh, of way, and did, And, and some of these pieces sort of were the results of experimenting with that technology. And, you know, it's funny how having a new piece of equipment Uh, or a new platform to kind of build your ideas off of can often give you uh, a push into territory that you might have gotten to other ways or you might not have. And, um, you know, a piece like Finding and Believing just would not have existed for me with just pencil and paper. The sonic possibilities of that world were uh, really um, inspiring to me. The Longest Summer is an interesting piece on a couple levels. One, structurally, it's got a form that, you know, you'd you'd have to call it something way more than like an A-A-B-A kind of form. You'd you'd need, you know, a lot more letters than that to describe all the different sections and the way it unfolds. It's also, I guess, notable because that's me playing piano on there. I do write most of the music on piano. Don't consider myself a piano player, but in, in the case of that particular tune, that was sort of the the central melodic voice and you know i had originally done it as a demo on the Synclav then as now a, a, a sampled piano really doesn't cut it so either I was going to have to get somebody else to come in and play it or play it myself and you know it, it was kind of a fun challenge and, and an interesting thing for me to come up with that um, approach of you know sitting there at the keyboard and having to come up with a performance and uh, that may well be my first and last piano playing recorded performance, but nevertheless, that's me in there. And uh, the feeling of this tune is a special one. This is one again that people comment on to me often. It's, you know, I don't know how many uh, weddings, births, you know, and other personal events this has been the accompanying music to, but it, it would be dozens, I guess, by now. Um, it's a tune that people seem to really respond to. That solo on there the the, the guitar synth solo is just for whatever reason one of my favorites of, of my recorded stuff when people ask me that I, that's one that I always point to and I remember the day of, of recording that you know like everything else on the record all the guitar stuff that I finally ended up using I was having to do is an overdub um, you know there were there, there was almost nothing played. You know, with other musicians at the time and uh, that's a very difficult task as an improviser. It seems like it would be easy because you can do it again or if you want to, which I of course did, but to get something happening that goes deep inside the music and inside the track is way harder than just playing with a good band, you know, and also the fact that you, you do know that you can do it again puts a very odd spin on things. I remember finally getting to the point where this solo emerged and uh, thinking, okay, now it's starting to really talk about what this tune is about. Sunlight is an interesting tune. This is a tune that I know there are a lot of people that really hate it. It's one that I've often felt like I kind of need to explain in a way because the, the top layer of what it is is so far away from the jazz anything. And the reference for this tune is a couple things. For whatever its presentation is, underneath the hood of this one, it moves through not all 12 keys, but close. Uh, it was kind of a an experiment to see how far I could push the idea of modulation and have it not seem like anything unusual was going on. But. Beyond that, there's a sort of uh, clear reference to Burt Bacharach and a certain tributary of pop music that has really been completely abandoned at this point that has to do with something that was happening in the 60s where people were really trying to keep harmony as a, a key component of pop music. And ultimately, pop music has kind of rejected that idea. It's sort of like said, no, we, we don't really want chords, you know. And this would have been the extreme in the other direction. One other aspect of this track that's kind of interesting is that I noticed that it says Sammy Marandino playing drums. In fact, Sammy Marandino is a virtuoso drum programmer. I couldn't get a drummer to play this tune the way that I thought it should be played. And at that time, the whole idea of somebody being a drum programmer uh, was brand new territory. The, you know, the, the, the thought of there being such thing as a virtuoso drum programmer was, was something like, wow, really? And I'd heard about Sammy, and he came in and just completely nailed it. It was better than any drummer, you know, that I could find. But I also have a feeling that that may be the reason why some people don't respond to this track, is that it, especially when you hear it now, you notice that. Tune that has one of those uh, mood things happening that uh, especially with the palette that was available with this uh, project with the orchestra with the various guitars the whole idea of layering things and overdubs and you know having that expansive potential for, for sound combinations this piece was designed just for for that this one as the tour progressed when we did do a or tour that followed, became a real favorite live. It was very effective live. It had all of these sound things going on with rain. and You know, we really did a whole uh, treatment of, of the piece on the record that uh, translated well live. This was another one that the solo, the guitar solo on that, I, I, I liked the sound we got on the guitar and the way that it sat and the whole track was was working well. and. Uh, and also the the way that the orchestra enhances the guitar and expands on it. Now at this point, when Secret Story was conceived, I was still in the head of records, and that was the side break um, between Rain River and Always and Forever. So Always and Forever for me, in my mind, still is the beginning of part two. And to me, if part one was everything that had happened to that point, part two was sort of the reflection of everything that had happened to that point in a way that has a very strong uh, melancholy you know pensive somewhat dark view of things it begins with always and forever which is a special tune on on a bunch of levels it it, it has has wound up being probably the tune of mine that is most played by other people there's There's got to be 20 or 30 different versions of Always and Forever Now, Maybe probably more than that, um, that people have recorded. And it's almost become a standard tune in some ways. I I hear people playing it all over the world now. And it's a tune that that I wrote for my parents. Uh, Both my mom and dad are uh, great people who uh, have uh, also... Now at that at that time we're together for about fifty years. They're going on sixty years together now, and that in itself is in, an inspiring thing. But uh, they they were really such great parents for for me and my brother. They they really uh, gave us uh, you know the, the the window to become the musicians that we both are through their enthusiastic support of of what we were doing and and also through exposing us to music and letting us understand what music is through their love of it. So this was a tune written for them that features uh, what Toots Thielman once told me were his most famous eight bars. He said, man, I've made all these records with all these different people and all anybody ever talks about is that eight bars that I play on that tune of yours, you know, and uh, you know, the whole thing is set up to let Toots's, uh little interlude there be the peak of this, uh, you know, orchestral moment. And uh, he just came in and, you know, I I had a, a sort of, you know, Sinclair version of what I'd hoped. And he just kind of laughed and said, OK, turn on the tape <laughs> and, and uh, you know, instantly... Played that famous uh, chit solo there. See the World is the tune that probably most overtly references the conception of, of the group and, and uh, has a, uh, the kind of harmonic qualities that I've always tried to write for the band that sort of invoke this, uh, you know, kind of all 12 notes at all times but with, like, you know, a certain kind of harmonic movement that is um, post-jazz standard level, but somehow also references, you know, things that are not far away from, uh, you know, popular music in a way, too. Uh, there's a, a very fine thread that allows all of those things to be simultaneously possible that, uh, you know, this tune would be a good example of, uh, you know, I would use as, a, as an argument to defend that conceptual idea um, much in the same way that uh, a lot of the music for the group does. What is kind of cool about this tune is that I had done all, literally, these exact parts, you know, with uh, the synclavier that I then filled in with, uh, you know, fantastic horn section that's really the cream of the New York crop, um, with a, a somewhat difficult string part that the, the guys in London were able to just, you know, nail after, you know, a half hour of practicing it. But, uh, you know, this tune is one, again, that a lot of musicians talk about and play. Um, it's very difficult, the changes on this to solo over or, you know, right up there are among the, the hardest ones that I've ever had to play. W- one of the memories I have of this tune is that we actually did this tune on The Tonight Show. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember thinking, you know, I was crazy <laughs> to, to tr- attempt to play on these changes in front of ex- Number of millions of people, and, it, and in fact, it isn't a very good version, much better on the record. But uh, it was a tune that you know was really fun to play live and, and works well at that point in the record. With the tune As a flower blossoms, I'm running to you, the record takes a real turn and, and for me that's the beginning of the end of the record, and from that point in the record to the end, it's really one long tune. That particular piece was, you know, written on the synclav without the idea of there being any element of voice. But there was something about the piece that was very Japanese to me somewhere. It reminded me of Japan, and I've had such incredible experiences over the years in Japan. I had worked with Akiko Yano around that time and had admired her so much from before, and I continue to admire her. She's one of the real visionaries in music. And I just wanted to have a little something, a little flavor of of that in there. And, And in fact, the words that she sings are uh, the Japanese words that mean, as a flower blossoms, I'm running to you. I always thought that was so beautiful uh, and that's what we called the tune. Antonia and The Truth Will Always Be were both part of a a longer piece that I wrote for a jazz ballet company in Montreal and uh, performed with them live. And those were both pieces that I wrote during a period of time that I was living in Brazil and somehow invoke something about that fairly unusual period of my life, living in this foreign country and going through some stuff that was difficult. And yet at the same time, this is the center of the record. The whole record has been leading up to these, you know, four tunes that that in the record. And in many ways, I don't have too much to say about these. They really speak for themselves. I can't really even talk about them. To try to describe the next four tunes is kind of impossible for me. It, it's just kind of what it is. The feelings that those tunes invoke, it's the same for me now as, as then. And then I thought it was about something, but it turns out it's not about anything. It's just the way it is. Any of the specifics that led to it are absolutely incidental now to the, the result those are tunes that I can play forever now too I, I, I would be happy to play um, you know the truth will always be for the next 24 hours and it would be infinite to me you know there would be an endless supply of ways of improvising in that in that world same with Antonio uh, same with tell her you saw me. And then the final piece is really an odd one that probably is worth talking about. It's called Not to Be Forgotten on the Record. It's a piece that I improvised right into the synclavier. There have been a couple other ones like that. Actually, Are You Going With Me is exactly the same. The piece was improvised kind of in real time. And then I made a form out of that improvisation, and that's what the tune is. Not to be forgotten, in fact, is really a small orchestral piece that had that uh, same birth. You know, orchestrating it and, and uh, coming up with a version of it was, you know, the final aspect of what began in the 2 minutes and 20 seconds of its conception. And. You know, somehow that line between improvisation and composition is is an interesting one. There are two similar events that happen at wildly different temperatures. And when they can be combined as here, that's a a, uh, a unique thing. And and it seemed like a a good way to, to wrap up this particular chapter of my life as a musician.